Hey, good morning, RCC. It's good to be with you today. Um, So thankful for my friend Brian, who was able to step in last weekend as my wife and I were sick with a newborn, which is a whole other layer of fun, Um, but glad to be back uh, with week two of our Christmas series, Christmas Vacation. We're calling it Christmas Vacation uh, because we're going to travel, like a lot of families do during the holiday season, to some unfamiliar Old Testament texts like Micah, some familiar New Testament texts like John next week, and some really weird Christmas texts like today. That's why I wear my Dwight Schrute sweater. There are some of you that like Parks and Rec over the office. God have mercy on your soul. Uh, There are just some weird Christmas texts like the one we're going to explore today. Believe it or not, the Christmas narrative is in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 12, if you have a Bible or a smartphone, you can go ahead and turn there or ignore that and just watch the screens. Either way, we're glad that you're here opening God's word uh, with us. Uh, This Christmas is different for my family. Our son Finnegan is six weeks old today, and watching Christmas through his eyes is a lot of fun. Namely, he just stares at the tree because it's one of the only, you know, contrasts in our living room. Uh, But watching Christmas through our newborn's eyes is giving us a different perspective uh, of Christmas. And Christmas is a great holiday, uh, but it is stark with tradition, right? We have to have our songs that we sing in church. We have to go shopping with these certain friends or do these certain things. Otherwise, it doesn't what? Feel like Christmas. And Christmas is a time to see things that we want to see. And honestly, with how difficult and tragic our world is, even with the news in Kentucky, uh, the last 48 hours, there are some things that if we don't want to look at, we don't have to. I guarantee you, Revelation chapter 12 probably is a Christmas text. If you've never heard of it, you've probably never thought about what is actually at the manger. Now, I would venture to guess that Almost every family has a nativity scene somewhere in your house, okay? And if you, look, it's fine if these are in your nativity scene, it's okay. But we incorrectly put the wise men there. They don't get there till Jesus is a little bit older. But that, that's, a, that's fine. I'm not going to judge you harshly. Uh, but, but there is one character that I guarantee you, uh, if there's one family here, that is amazing, that you probably don't have at your nativity scene every single year. Here's the character that you're missing that John's going to talk about in Revelation chapter 12. Every nativity scene needs, are you ready? A dragon. A dragon was at the first Christmas and should be in every nativity set. Because the way John paints Christmas is this Christmas cosmic warfare. We just talked about or sang about how the battle belongs to the Lord and that we fight on our knees. And, and there's, you know, there's a great aspect of Christmas that it's warm and, and fuzzy, but, but we should not ignore the text that talks about, no, the birth of Christ was actually a cosmic battle between himself and Satan. Here's my big idea for today, church, okay? Every nativity needs a dragon <clears throat> to remind us that God is faithful to his word, he'll always honor his son, and he'll always care for his church. One of the words that John uses a lot in Revelation is this Greek word, blepso, it means behold. And we sing this a lot during Christmas and some worship songs. You probably don't um, say the word behold, but if you have a son or daughter that ever played baseball and was terrified of getting hit by the pitcher, you would tell them, right, choke up on the bat, elbow up, and what? keep your eye on the ball. 
That's the same word as behold. And John's writing to a group of Christians in occupied Rome, uh, modern-day Turkey. Uh, They are in Ephesus. They are in Laodicea. Uh, We talked about this at Smyrna, the seven churches. Uh, Last fall, we went through Revelation. And one of the pastoral um, encouragements that John has to all of these churches in first century Rome is to keep your eyes focused on Jesus. It was not beneficial politically, economically, socially uh, in your neighborhood to be a Christian. And yet they were trying to figure out how to follow Jesus when it did not benefit you socially to be a Christ follower. And we talked about last week in Micah chapter uh, 5 and in the week before that, that oftentimes when the enemy is coming, right, whether it's a psalm in David or the devil here in Revelation chapter 12, the writers often don't go for the, why is this happening to me? They tend to go for the Hebraic way of dealing with suffering of, God, remind me of your beauty. I want to be in your presence. Life is really difficult. Help me behold you. Help me stay focused on you and keep my eyes set on you. And that's what John's going to do here in Revelation chapter 12. So let's, let's check out this unique Christmas story in Revelation chapter 12. John writes, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment that he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule all of the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Now, when's the last time you read that in a Christmas Hallmark card? Answer, never, right? I love what Eugene, Eugene Pierce said about this text. This is not the nativity story that we grew up with, but it is a nativity story all the same. So let's walk through this very foreign, weird Christmas text together, okay? The first thing I want you to know about this text is that we can always trust God to keep his word. Christmas did not begin in Bethlehem. Christmas began in the Garden of Eden. The first prophecy that a Messiah is coming is found in Genesis 3.15. After the fall, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head, speaking of the Messiah, and you will strike his heal. There's going to be tension, Eve. There's going to be tension between the evil one and the coming of the Messiah. Now, the first question we probably are asking um, or should be asking is, who is this woman? Well, if you're sitting there and you're like, well, Ben, this is a Christmas narrative, it's like probably Mary. You probably need to get your money back from college. Mm, It's not. It's not actually. Notice in Revelation 12 how the woman is described. She said to be clothed with sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Now, in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the people of God are portrayed like women. 
The church is the bride of Christ. This isn't uh, this isn't just one person. It's not Eve. It's not Abraham's wife, Sarah. It's not Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is the remnant of Israel. This is a, now you got to think about it. apocalyptic literature is very artistic. It's very um, abstract, right? You're not supposed to read Revelation figuratively or literally. I'm going to really throw some of you off. You need to read it naturally. And you're like, that's not a natural way to say Israel, like talking about a woman who is in pain giving birth. But what John is talking about, now think about his context, these group of Christians under severe persecution, and there's this dragon, this seven-headed beast, hairy thing, waiting on top of this nativity scene for the Christ child to be born so that he might devour him. And John is saying that God will always keep his word. Uh, when I was studying for this sermon about two weeks ago or so, it's amazing all of the prophecies that are talking to the Israelite people. The Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. Twelve prophecies about the beginnings of, of Jesus' uh, birth back in the Old Testament. Eleven prophecies about his ministry. Nine prophecies, and these are just a handful, about his betrayal. Eleven prophecies about his crucifixion. Why do you care about this? Because this is a historical reality. Like David never met Jesus and describes the crucifixion of the Messiah to a T. Seven prophecies about Jesus' death and five prophecies about the result of someone believing in Christ and what happens to someone when they come to faith in Jesus. And John is pastorally reminding his audience, as I am reminding you, that no matter what is going on in your life, no matter how difficult this season is, and this is a word not only for the people of Maysfield, Kentucky need, but people in Salem, New Hampshire, and everyone that you need, no matter what is going on in your life, God will always keep his word. He wrote a book, believe it or not, well, really a volume of 66 books called the Bible. He spent over about 1,500 years, depending on who you want to read, 1,500 years, five continents, men and women, contributing to this beautiful piece of work, some of which they never met. The authors never met each other, and yet they tell the same singular story. The Messiah is coming. Now, if God can keep his promise about one thing over 1,500 years, God will keep his promise to you and to your family. This woman that is giving birth is not Mary, it's not Eve, it's not Sarah, it's not any one person, but it is a collection of the nation of Israel that the time is now coming, this very first Christmas, that the Messiah is going to be born and there is going to be a cosmic battle between the dragon and Jesus. Now, we know this includes the church as well because of what happens to the woman when she gives birth. A few verses later in Revelation 12, 13 and 17, John writes this, when the dragon saw that he had hurled, he had been hurled to the earth, we'll talk about that in a second, he pursued the woman and had given birth to the male child. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. Those who kept God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. This dragon realizes, <clears throat> excuse me, that the mission has not been accomplished and he is ticked. And what does John say? Who does he go after? 
all the other children of this woman. What is he talking about? He's talking about you. He's talking about me. He's talking about any Jesus follower who's trying to keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony. If you are here this morning or are watching online and you are not a Christ follower, the devil, the dragon, the hairy beast, you are not a threat to him. John says the devil, the dragon, goes after Christ followers. Because if he can get us to not follow Jesus' commands, right? Love one another, serve one another, consider others better than you, take up your cross, then he might be able to ruin your testimony, which is this personal story. So there's this objective truth uh, across human history. It doesn't matter uh, where you were born, your ethnicity, your time period, that there is a God who sent his son to die for your sin. But then there's a very real subjective personal element, which is your testimony about how you came to faith in Jesus. And if this dragon can trip you up in your story, he will have a small victory in a war that he knows that he knows he will lose. Stay addicted to that secret that nobody else in your family knows about. Keep drinking this holiday season to bury your pain. Keep having the affair. Students, keep hating your parents. What do they know anyways? Because the dragon wants you to keep from following Jesus' commands. And he doesn't want you to have a compelling story. Because sometimes when the suffering is so great, the people, I, I, I did not grow up far from Kentucky. It's just on my mind and my heart today. When the suffering is so great and there are no words to describe it, we need each other's stories to remind us that God is always faithful to his word. He spent 1,500 years telling us one thing. We screwed up. We're under the wrath of God. But in Romans chapter 2, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And I find this true on both sides of the coin. In Romans chapter 2, Paul is saying, some of you all just sort of scoff at how good and kind God is. And then on this side of the coin in Revelation 12, some of you, Christians and non, don't even take into account that there's actually a spiritual element. Like so, some of you, everyone wants to die and go to heaven, but we're, we're kind of like, I don't know, I'm too educated to think that there might be a hell or that there's a there's a dragon, or there's a demon, or, or whatever. Listen, church, no matter what you're going through, this holiday season or whatever, you can take it to the bank. God will always keep his word. That's why you have to, like, actually read it. One other small antidote. At the end of the Gospels, when Peter sees Jesus as God in the, uh, the Mount of Transfiguration, that was probably a pretty epic moment. That would, as we call it in the American church, a spiritual high. But do you know what he writes in First and Second Peter later in his life? He writes the best text on why you should trust the Bible. Out of all of the things that he saw, which is Jesus Christ in his deity form, he says, we have a more sure way of following our faith. And then he talks about the historical reliability of the Bible. As cool as it was for me to have my personal experience with Jesus, I still have a sacred text that I can read 
when I feel like the world is crashing down on me, when Jesus is no longer here because he ascended into heaven, though I have his Holy Spirit, it's good to have a text to remind me that even when life is difficult, God will always, always keep his word. And because he always keeps his word, we can trust God that he'll always honor his son. And anybody that follows Jesus, he will honor them as well. In Revelation 12, 9, John writes this, the great dragon was hurled down, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. Now, this demon evil thing is called a lot of things. Uh, This is a great snapshot of what he is called or some of the bigger, more familiar words in Revelation chapter 12. The reason why you need to care about this is because name informs function, okay? Name informs function. So especially in Hebrew, in the Old Testament context, your name is an indication of how you move about in this world. And so there's three names given here to this evil character. The first one is a dragon, which means he has murderous intentions. The dragon wants to have nothing else in your life but fear dominate you. And to, he wants you to think that he's a figment of your imagination. He's also called a devil, which is the idea of an accuser, right? A prosecuting attorney, you're on trial for sin or your crimes. He is throwing the book at you, at your heavenly father, the judge. He wants that negative energy, that negative, uh, uh, negative tape, going back to the 80s, that negative cassette tape playing over and over again. You're stupid. You're worthless. Nobody loves you. You're a joke. You're never going to find somebody to marry you. The third name that he's given here is Satan, which is the word accuser, or sorry, adversary, which means that he is in direct opposition to you, direct opposition to you. One of the things that I love about sports, and which is really frustrating being a Bengals fan, is they clobber the Ravens and then lose to a backup quarterback uh, for the Jets. Like, welcome, right? You, yeah, you, you, you know, maybe someday I do like the Patriots, I'll admit that. Uh, it would be fun to see them play the Bucks in the Super Bowl. But, but there is something frustrating when your team does not take the opposition seriously. <laughs> and you get mauled over by a backup quarterback for the New York Jets. <laughs> right? That's exactly what this dragon wants you to think of him. It's exactly, he does not want you to take him seriously. Right? He, he wants you to be civilized and educated and, and above this nonsense that there could be, you know, science would explain away the evilness and demon possession and the movement of Satan and his minions. And the Bible couldn't be f- further from that. The Bible paints a different picture that the enemy is real. The dragon is real. He wants to make your life a living hell. He wants, to do, he wants families to break up. He wants families to divorce. And if you could divorce over the holidays, he would love that. He does not want you to take him seriously, right? He doesn't want you to have personal devos as families. He doesn't want your family to pray together. Husbands, he doesn't want, your, uh, he doesn't want you to pray for your wife away from her and with her. He doesn't want you to practice financial generosity He definitely doesn't want want you to serve with Jim because you're going to have a lot of fun doing that on first impressions. Whatever he can do for you to not take him seriously, 
That's what he wants to be the reality of your life. John paints this dragon, multi-headed, this hairy beast, and we don't have time to get into it, but it's a head nod, it's a vision back to Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel is writing about um, the fourth beast. And this power that John is attributing to the dragon is, is, is basically, in a nutshell, a political power right? We talked about this in the Revelation series, that even the Caesars thought they were God, right? Uh, Jesus is Lord is not a theological statement. The church stole that from Rome. It was a political statement. Saying that Jesus is Lord meant you were saying that Caesar was not Lord. And so what John is doing for us is he's telling us the devil, the dragon, the accuser, the, uh, Satan, the enemy, whatever you want to call him, will use every means necessary to try to thwart the first Christmas. And if he can't succeed there, he's going to go to after everyone who's trying to keep Jesus' commands and share their testimony with other people. And then, he, then John gets into this weird, you know, uh, artistic expression that this dragon fell from heaven and his, his uh, tail is like sort of like uh, something out of like the Chronicles of Narnia or Lord of the Rings, which is a narrative of the Gospels, by the way. Um, and there's like a third of the stars fall. Most theologians, people much smarter than me, would say that that is a head nod or a tribute to when Lucifer, the most beautiful angel, Satan, decided, I'm going to dominate God. <laughs> I'm going to kick God out of his own house. I want to be the ruler here. And God says, nope, you're gone. And when the devil leaves heaven, he takes a third of the angels to go with him to hell, and it begins this all-out assault on humanity. Christmas is a cosmic battle between the dragon and the Messiah. And, and, and check this out. He's been doing this throughout the entire Old Testament of violence. Cain killing Abel, Pharaoh killing Egyptians, Saul killing himself, Haman committed genocide against the Jews in the book of Esther, and Herod is trying to kill Jesus. More specifically, the devil is trying to attack the line of Judah, the family of Judah, the family of which Jesus is going to be born. Look, listen, listen, as a child of divorce, that came out in 2006 during the Christmas holiday season, 2005. The devil still wants to attack Christian families. My dad's a drummer, really good one. My mom's an awesome Sunday school teacher back when they did that. Now they have small groups. Her th their th three boys are in ministry. And the devil still wants to destroy my family. And the devil still wants to destroy your family as well. And if he didn't succeed with the line of Judah, maybe he'll succeed with the Seaman family or the Smith family or the Yankee family or the Frost family. He will not stop until Jesus returns and says, enough is enough. Turn out the lights. The party is over. But we can trust that God will always keep his word, and he will always honor his son. Psalm uh, chapter 2, verse 7 through 9, which is another prophecy about Jesus. God says, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. 
Today I've become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Now, the Hebrew word rod is, um, so when a shepherd has a staff and there's that hook that he uses to like beat animals or enemies coming at a sheep, that's, no, that's also known as a rod, okay? And so partly what uh, the writer is saying, not in full because you don't have all the time today, is that Jesus only ever took one beating in his life. And when he comes back, he's dropping the hammer. Satan will be vanquished, the enemy will be no more, and the people of God will be with the Messiah in heaven forever. And Jesus does this through the incarnation. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15 says this, since the children have flesh and blood, you and I, since we're people, he, Jesus, too, shared in our humanity. If that's not the definition of empathy, I don't know what is. So that by his death, he might break the power of him, Satan, the devil, the dragon, who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those, uh, and free the, free those who all their lives were held in slavery. There's another reality we don't want to admit, but that's why we have the book of Exodus. Held in slavery by the fear of of death. In other words, one of my uh, seminary professors said it this way, Jesus at Christmas became, or on the cross, became what got you into trouble, your sin, to get you out of trouble, the grace of God. And because of the bloody cross and because of the empty tomb, this weird multi-headed demon, dragon thing, has no power over us. In 1 Corinthians 15, 55, man, this is an Easter text. Paul says, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Jesus eats death for breakfast and defangs the enemy. All in one fell swoop of a bloody cross and walking away from an empty tomb. Man, we have a powerful God, don't we? Christmas is just more than warm and fuzzies. It's a cosmic battle between your soul and your family's soul. In Revelation 12, 5, John writes, she gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule, Psalm 2, uh, will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, and her children uh, was snatched up to God and to be on his throne. This, so if the other text was a snapshot of the devil, this is a snapshot of Jesus's life, right? He was born, he is king, he is Lord, then he was snatched up to God and to his throne. Now, some people might ask, like, well, why doesn't John include the crucifixion and the resurrection? Well, he doesn't because he includes the ascension, where Jesus was snatched up to God, because the ascension already implies that the dragon has been defeated on the cross. And death has no victory over us because the tomb is empty. Church, you can trust God that he will always keep his word and he will always honor his son and those who follow Jesus' commands and share the testimony of what he's done in their life. And here's the third and final thing before I end today is that God will always, always, always care for his church. Always. Jesus is the best pastor you will ever have in your life. 
Romans 12, Romans, Revelation 12, 6, John finishes this paragraph by saying this, the woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Now, typically in the Old Testament, the wilderness was um, where people would go to serve a punishment. Um, th- there's isolation, but it was also um, a lot of the prophets and, and the Exodus narrative that the wilderness is also where people go to have an encounter with God. Right? They, they crank down the volume of the noise in their busy lives, and they say, God, I need to be with you. That's what's going on in Revelation 12 this morning in our text this morning, is that the wilderness was a place of safety. It was a place of shelter. So not only is our God so good to us at Christmas time, he keeps his word over 1,500 years in 66 books, culminating in this thing called the Bible, He not only does that, but he sends his son who dies and rises again three days later. And then we have constant protection and provision from our heavenly father as we walk this reality that we're all in called life. Isaiah 40, 10 through 11 reads this. See, Bledsoe, keep your eye on the ball. See the sovereign Lord. Sovereign, what does that word mean? The God that is in control of everything. Nothing surprises King Jesus. Look at Jesus. Keep your eye on Jesus. See the sovereign Lord comes with power. Right? This is not the Christmas story. <laughs> with power. And he rules with a mighty arm. See, Bletso, behold, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He, Jesus, tends to his flock like a shepherd. Notice how pastoral Jesus is, that he wants to be with us. He gathers the lambs in his arm and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. God, listen, church, God will always keep his word. He will always honor his son. And he will always take care of you. Should you, like Israel, seek shelter in the wilderness. This is why every nativity scene needs a dragon. Go let your middle school boy, middle school girl go buy one today at Target. Every nativity scene needs a dragon to remind us that God is faithful to his word, he honors his son, and he cares for his church. This is the message of the Christmas story in Revelation chapter 12. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for this beautiful, weird, sacred text that reminds us that there is more going on at Christmas than we probably want to look at. Um, The holidays do have a way of conjuring up uh, mistakes and regrets and reminds us that, you know, last year we were married and now we're single, or uh, last year we had our grandparents and now we don't, and there's just a lot of tension and struggle during this holiday season. And you know, honestly, Lord, we're so well off in America. You've, you've really blessed us here that we don't really want to look at stuff that makes us uncomfortable. And yet, you know that. And so you give us a weird, awesome, helpful book called Revelation, and you put a Christmas narrative right in the middle of chapter 12 to remind us that you will always keep your word 
You will always honor Jesus and anyone who follows his commands and shares their testimony, and you are always desiring to take care of of us. Let us not this Christmas season avoid your word. Let us not this Christmas season dishonor King Jesus. And let us not this Christmas season only know that you love us, but actually allow you to love us. May we receive that love this Christmas. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.